Casey Communications Incorporated is sponsor of Voices of Experience. Given the right to vote, of course they and everybody who has a chance. It is the predominant fundamental right of this country to participate in our democracy, to at least cast a vote. I see one of the greatest problems of the early 21st century is learning to live as a much more diverse and, and varied society, both ethnically and culturally, than we have in the past. I remain hopeful that we'll find political leadership that will help us to do that. We are indeed all brothers after all, uh, and uh, if we lose sight of that in advocacy or in uh, uh, reaching to win, uh, I think we'll all lose. That's David Domke, Father William Sullivan, attorney and civic activist Jim Ellis. They all share one common trait. They were and are true pathfinders. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience, my name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. In the 1990s, I hosted a segment on Kixie AM radio called Profiles of Experience. I would interview people with experience in sports like Don James, Bob Blackburn, adventure, mountain climber Jim Whitaker, former governors and mayors, and an occasional out-of-town celebrity like Cindy Williams, Petula Clark, or Robin Leach. Most of the time, I would ask people particularly those in the public policy arena, were they optimistic about the future? Most of the people I interviewed said absolutely yes, an unqualified yes. But two of the guests I had on the show 20 years ago, Father William Sullivan and Jim Ellis, hedged some. And they used some of the words like hopeful, but they had some qualified yeses with that. I will replay these interviews because we are now living in the time frame that I asked them to make some of their predictions. How accurate were they in expressing some of their concerns? Spoiler alert, they were very close. We will also fast forward to what is happening today. David Domke, he is a professor of communications at the University of Washington and founder of Common Purpose, a nonprofit. The goal of Common Purpose is to mainly enhance voter turnout. David addressed the Seattle Rotary and talked about the checkered past of certain voting blocks not being allowed to vote in this country. If you think all citizens have a right to vote, think again. And now because of David Domke's efforts, there is something that you can do about it. Father William Sullivan served as president of Seattle University between 1976 and 1996. He increased the endowment from about $4 million a year when he came to over $70 million when he retired. He also added a law school to the campus under his tenure. It's hard to believe this now, but there was talk when... Father William Sullivan took over the reins at Seattle University that it was in danger of closing its doors. David Domke, coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
Stumkin, a professor at the University of Washington and the Department of Communications, spoke to the Rotary Club Number no. 4 in downtown Seattle. Why do they call it Rotary Club Number no. 4? Well, I'm going to tell you. There are over 32,000 Rotary Clubs throughout the world. The reason the Seattle Club is called Number no. 4, it was the fourth Rotary Club in history. Now you know. I actually didn't know that till very recently myself. Back to David. He is the founder and director of Common Purpose, an organization that works to mobilize voters. He talked about the history of voting in our country, and it's really quite spotty, as probably many of you know. But because of time limitations, I would like to pick up with this talk, beginning with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act is a spectacular piece of legislation. It is one of the most impactful, carefully developed, truly effective pieces of legislation. Many historians call it the most important small d democratic piece of legislation this country's ever passed. One of the arguments made by white Americans is that black people didn't want to write the vote. They didn't care. So they went to great lengths to prove that they did care. And in 2004, when we look at the numbers, we actually see that nah, you know, they, these folks look pretty similar. Given the right to vote, of course they and everybody who has a chance. It is the predominant fundamental right of this country to participate in our democracy, to at least cast a vote. I use these data in 1965 and 2004 because they are, they are used in a court decision that comes out in 2013, the Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder, in which the Supreme Court of the United States rules that one section, a key section of the, Civil, of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional, just guts it, absolutely guts it. And John Roberts writes the court decision in this in a 5-4 decision. In the key paragraph in, in, in uh, Roberts' decision, he says, things have changed dramatically since 1965. Yet the act has not eased Section 5's restrictions. I just can't, don't have time to explain all that, but that's an important piece of the act. Has not eased Section 5's restrictions or narrowed the scope of Section 4's coverage formula along the way. Basically saying you haven't updated this. Instead, the, those extraordinary unprecedented features have been reauthorized as if nothing has changed. And they have grown even stronger. Our country has changed. And while any racial discrimination in voting is too much, Congress must ensure that the legislation that passes to remedy that problem speaks to current conditions. It's an incredibly important court decision. Thank you very much. Incredibly important. And I'll take Roberts at his word. He says it should speak to current conditions. In a dissent, I'm going to get this in a dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, you might agree with her politics or her positions, but just as a human being, she's incredible, right? Just as a pure human. I love that him, her and Scalia were best pals, right? If that isn't a model for us, then I don't know what is. Gins, uh, Ginsburg writes a dissent. She says, my colleague John Roberts is correct. America has changed. And the reason it's changed is because of laws like the Voting Rights Act. And if you take away that law, we're going to go back to where we were. And she uses an analogy of this, of an umbrella in a rainstorm. And she says, to get rid of the Voting Rights Act when you're dry, 
is to assume that in the middle of a rainstorm, because you're dry, you can get rid of the thing that made you dry and you'll still stay dry. Would you stand in the middle of a rainstorm and be dry from an umbrella and say, I'm dry, I can get rid of it. And she pointed to the thousands of times that the Department of Justice since the Voting Rights Act, literally thousands of times, had blocked a variety of discriminatory laws going into place across this country, many in the South, but not all, that the Voting Rights Act had prevented from being passed. And she said, we are gonna revert, okay? So um, I tend to depress people when I talk, but I won't end there, I promise. But the reality is that she's absolutely correct. And so the second part of my talk is to give a sense of what is the scale of what we'll call voter suppression in America. It's not voter disenfranchisement. Disenfranchisement is that you cannot vote at all. You're intimidated through violence or law or laws prevent you. Voter suppression is to make it harder to vote. 23 states since 2011 have passed laws that made it harder to vote. Roughly a third of these passed these the day after the Shelby County decision. They had the laws ready to go and they enacted them the day after. This is states that have made it harder to vote. What does that look like? I'm gonna give you some examples. One thing is proof of ID laws. Everybody's gotta show a voter identification law to, to, uh, to vote. On principle, this sounds just fine. Shouldn't we have to show ID just like we have to have a driver's license or to buy medicine? Shouldn't we have to show ID? I would be with you if a national ID was provided to every single person in this country. I'm with you. But that isn't the way it works. National IDs are not provided to everybody. We don't have such a thing. And so states by states decide what voter IDs count. In Texas, a gun license ID counts as college ID does not. In the state of Missouri, where the Students at the University of Missouri protested racial discrimination historically at the University of Missouri. The Missouri legislature responded by removing voter ID, uh, college IDs as a legitimate voter ID. They, re they responded this way. So we don't have a system that is consistent in this way. We have an unequal system where in certain states it can pass if you have certain IDs, in other states it doesn't. We have complicated voter registrations. It's not easy to register to vote in most states. It's very complicated. In fact, it's threatening to many people. They feel that the government's gonna not only get them to register to vote, they're gonna show up at their doors, okay? We can close DMV offices where most people register to vote. Across the South, DMV offices get closed in rural counties all the time. And people's, uh, certain leadership's response is, you can just drive 40 miles, 50 miles, no, you actually can't if you don't have a car, if you don't have time, you don't have money. It isn't that easy. We can reduce the number of voting places. The percentage, the number, per capita number of people living in urban cities in our society who have voting booths relative to the number of voting booths in rural areas is about a difference of 10 to 1. So many more in urban areas. You're far more likely to have to wait. It also so happens to correlate with the fact that people of color live in urban areas. So you wipe out voting booths, this matters. In Florida, they took all voting booths off of college campuses. Just said, no, you shouldn't have them. You can reduce voting windows, cut back the amount of time you can vote. One of the major targets is to remove voting on weekends, when again, people who have jobs who can't make time to vote on a Tuesday would go vote. 
you remove it. In North Carolina, they did this with what the courts have said is surgical precision targeted to African-Americans to remove their ability to vote. They removed, they cut back to certain days of the week and weekends. Finally, last one, purging of voter rolls. What a voter roll is, is a long list of voter people are identified as voters. And when you show up to vote in most states, not in this state, but in most states, you have to go to a place to vote. And you show up and you say, I'm so-and-so, and you either show your ID or not show your ID. And they cross-check it with a list. That list is a voter roll. It says you're a registered voter, you can vote. If your name's on that list, you can cast a regular vote. If your name's not on that list, you get to cast what's called a absentee or a provisional ballot. Those ballots are only counted if the election is close. The Supreme Court two years ago ruled that you could purge people off of voter rolls if they haven't voted within the last couple elections in any state. States get that call. In Ohio, there's a big lawsuit right now because they were about to purge hundreds of thousands of voters, but there are lots of mistakes on those voter rolls. So the ACLU, Jeffrey Robinson was here, has, is one of the key litigants against that, about blocking that. Okay, the one, I'm not even gonna put it on the list, the, the one that was, sits very strong right now, which is called the lifetime disfranchisement for felonies. That the reality is that when you commit a felony, you're often disfranchised either for life or for long periods of your life in our country. Comparing our current predicament to democratic crises in other parts of the world and at other moments of history, it becomes clear that America is not so different from other nations. Our constitutional system, while older and more robust than any in history, is vulnerable to the same pathologies that have killed democracy elsewhere. No single political leader can end a democracy. No single leader can rescue one either. Democracy is a shared enterprise. Its fate depends on all of us. That's David Domke, a professor at the Department of Communications at the University of Washington. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Common Purpose, you can visit commonpurpose.org, and you can find out how you can participate and really have a hand in saving democracy. And I don't think I'm really too dramatic by saying democracy is in peril. And from David's discussion and other indications throughout the country, I don't think it's a big exaggeration. Fortunately, in Washington state, we don't have many, if any, barriers to voting. But many states do. And the only way we can keep the democracy going is to be vigilant and get involved. We are very pleased to have Father William J. Sullivan with us this morning. Father Sullivan will be celebrating his 20th year as president of Seattle University next month. During that span, Seattle University has gone from an institution that was clearly struggling for survival into one of the top-rated independent universities in the country. Because of Father Sullivan's efforts, the future of Seattle University is very bright indeed. When did you know that you wanted to become a priest? Well, I thought a lot about it during my uh, my years in high school. I went to a, a Jesuit high school back in Wisconsin and obviously was, you know, much impressed and so on with uh, the life of the Jesuit priests at that school. I guess I would, I would really say, Paul, that um, probably my decision was more to become a Jesuit, in other words, associate myself with that group and its work. Part of that then, of course, was the idea also of becoming a priest. Well, what have you learned about this community from your position that you've held for the last 20 years? In some ways, the first thing I learned, and I think the most remarkable thing that I've learned, is that 
Seattle is very much a community that is open to people who want to participate. That is, say, whether you're a newcomer or whether you're a young person who's coming into your professional life, there is a great openness in this community uh, for people who are willing to contribute and to serve, whether it's through the Seattle Foundation or the United Way or the you know, Children's Hospital Board or whatever. Is the type of student different today at Seattle University than it was 20 years ago? The, the general profile of our students is much the same. That is, say, Seattle University has always drawn students from modest economic backgrounds. We've been an access school for many young people who, through the help of financial aid from the university or from the government, have an opportunity to come here to school. So the general profile of our student body uh, remains a lot the same. There are certainly differences in that these young people come out of a different culture. You know, our, our basic culture, and especially youth culture, has changed so much. I, I often say to our faculty members here, when you go into a classroom and look at these group of freshman mathematics students or whatever they may be, you really have to remind yourself that they come from a different tribe than you do. What are the major reasons that led to Seattle University's dramatic turnaround? Again, probably several, one of which was a very, very strong core of uh, dedicated and devoted faculty members here at the university. So I think a combination of financial stability internally, community support, and uh, I think also then I've benefited from excellent administrators in the university here, the vice presidents and the deans and so on. We've got a very, very fine administrative group, and I think they do a good job of running the university. Are you optimistic about the future of Seattle and the country? Well, uh, let me say I, I'm certainly hopeful. I think, you know, hopeful would be my word maybe rather than optimistic. I think there are very, very significant problems in the American political system and American society, but but I continue to be hopeful that with the uh, very high levels of education we have in this country and with uh, the prospect of economic prosperity, yeah, I'm very hopeful that, that we'll be able to deal with some of the kinds of problems. Probably one of the, I see one of the greatest problems of the early 21st century is learning to live as a much more diverse and, and varied society, both ethnically and culturally than we have in the past. I remain hopeful that will find political leadership that will help us to do that. Father William Sullivan, who is celebrating his 20th year as president of Seattle University. Father Sullivan, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. You're most welcome, and thank you, Paul. The following is an exchange between Charles Gibson and author David McCullough. Example one, first speech in the book from 1989. You quote Margaret Chase Smith of mm -hmm. Maine, who had the guts to rebuke Joe McCarthy. She said, I don't want to see the Republican Party, and she was a Republican from Maine, ride the political victory on the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. Smear, yeah. Smear is the interesting word here, and why did you think perhaps that had application to the current times? <laughs> Charlie, you'd be perfect if you only had a sense of humor. <laughs> Could you imagine somebody reading that uh, in the current political climate mm. and what they might think? What, wouldn't it be wonderful? <laughs> no, wouldn't it be wonderful? 
and a Republican to stand up as she did. And she's a woman, and she's one of the rare cases of women in the Senate at that point in our history. And most people today have no idea who Margaret Chase Smith was. She's one of the bravest, most admirable political figures we've ever had. And not many Republicans are standing up now? Not enough. Jim Ellis is a partner in the law firm of Preston, Gates & Ellis. From a stroll on Seattle Center grounds to an afternoon swim in pollution-free Lake Washington, or attending a Mariners game in the Kingdom, all have one common denominator, and that's the name of Jim Ellis, who was always involved in the concept level, but also toiled through an often cumbersome process to make these dreams become a reality. And Jim, welcome to Profiles of Experience. What do you consider the greatest challenges facing the Puget Sound region as we enter the next century? I believe the, the really big challenge is going to be maintaining a sense of community and conducting ourselves with mutual respect and civility as we address the challenges that will come up, both uh, physically, economically, and personally, uh, in the in the next few years, uh, it's uh, it's crucial that we not get so caught up in how we feel about each physical, economic, or political challenge that we lose sight uh, of our need to be civil to each other, uh, to share uh, whenever we can uh, a feeling that we're all part of the same ballgame. We are indeed all brothers after all, uh, and. Uh, if we lose sight of that in advocacy or in uh, uh, reaching to win, uh, I think we'll all lose. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to do that? I have to be optimistic, because if one is really pessimistic about that, then one foresees a downhill slide, no matter what the physical circumstances or economic circumstances. I believe at some point we will uh, realize it uh, before we slip into some abyss. What is hopeful is that we might realize it much sooner and then gain from addressing each of the problems that comes along. What do you think makes this area unique? Well, obvious to most people is that it is an extremely beautiful natural area. Uh, and that carries with it some mandatory, uh, obligatory sense of stewardship and responsibility that we don't screw it up. <laughs> what do you think are the most important public policy issues this area has made in the last 30 years that has had the most positive impacts on the region? The most positive uh, for me are uh, environmental. We have addressed, in fact, we were among the first in the country to address the need uh, to clean up our water, to stop uh, fouling our nest, uh, and uh, uh, that was done uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s before there ever was an EPA or before there were any federal grants when this area decided to clean up its uh, lakes, like Washington Lake Sammamish, and its uh, nearby Puget Sound areas, Elliott Bay and surroundings. Uh, that was, I think, uh, a remarkable thing because it involved lots of people cut across all walks of life, and because it was done... Uh, as a matter of local initiative and not as a matter of response to court orders or to federal uh, mandates or even to state mandates. Then uh, what do you think, uh, I guess, along those lines uh, would be opportunities that we may have taken our eye off? 
I think we missed the boat badly when we didn't approve the opportunity to have uh, a major rapid transit system in place uh, in 1968 and 1970 when we voted down uh, or didn't approve by a sufficient majority would be a better way to put it, uh, the rapid transit proposal that was presented in 68 and 70. That time, uh, we would have had full funding from the federal government in the form of a check, which Senator Magnuson offered to deliver if the people would vote for that system. We would have had in place a system comparable to MARTA's in uh, Atlanta, which is a beautiful uh, uh, electric transit system, uh, separated right-of-way. Uh, and uh, they built their system with the money that we turned down. Mr. Jim Ellis, thank you very much for spending time on Profiles of Experience. Thank you, Paul. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to David Domke and also to the downtown Seattle Rotary, the late Father William Sullivan, former president of Seattle University, and civic leader Jim Ellis for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Jim Ellis is 99 years old, and uh, I believe he has had the biggest impact on the Puget Sound region of anybody in the last 50 to 70 years. That's a bold statement, I know, but I really believe that. Of course, there's been Bill Gates along the way, and more currently, Jeff Bezos. But I still think Jim Ellis was the one who has more influence on how we live today than anybody else. What do you think? Do you have a different opinion on that? You can call 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And provide your opinion as to who do you think has had the biggest impact on the Puget Sound region, again, going back the last 50 to 70 years. Now, if you're interested in going into business for yourself, visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a self-employment quiz. There is a total of 20 questions. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Quote of the day, the moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life the children, the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick and the needy. That's presidential candidate and former United States Senator from Minnesota, Hubert H. Humphrey. Have a great rest of the week or weekend, depending on when you're listening to the show.